Welcome to Quanta Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. We can pick out a conversation in a loud room amid the rise and fall of other voices or the hum of an air conditioner. We can spot a set of keys and a sea of clutter or register a raccoon darting into the path of our onrushing car. Somehow, even with massive amounts of information flooding our senses, we're able to focus on what's important and act on it. But how do we actually focus our attention? Attentional processes are the brain's way of shining a searchlight on relevant stimuli and filtering out the rest. Neuroscientists want to find out which circuits aim and power that searchlight. For decades, their studies have revolved around the cortex, the folded structure on the outside of the brain, commonly associated with intelligence and higher-order cognition. It's become clear that activity in the cortex boosts sensory processing to enhance features of interest. But now, some researchers are trying a different approach. They're studying how the brain suppresses information rather than how it augments it. They found that this process involves more ancient regions, much deeper in the brain, regions not often considered when it comes to attention. By doing so, scientists have also inadvertently started to take baby steps toward a better understanding of how body and mind are deeply intertwined. For a long time, attention seemed tied up with consciousness and other complex functions. So scientists assumed that it was first and foremost a cortical phenomenon. A major departure from that line of thinking came in 1984 with Francis Crick, known for his work on the structure of DNA. Here's Michael Halassa, a neuroscientist at the McGovern Institute for Brain Research at MIT. There was this idea that Francis Crick put forward about the searchlight hypothesis of the thalamus. The idea was that information to the forebrain comes from the senses through the thalamus and then to the neocortex, the folded structure and the outside portion of the brain. The cortex is associated with putting stimuli together, constructing sort of an internal model of the world, higher level cognition. Halasa gives an example. When I'm talking with you and there's an AC in the background, the speech, the language coming through is going to take precedence over the humming sound of the AC in the background. And it's not so much because my voice is louder, it's just because it's tagged as behaviorally significant. So how is the selection process of stimuli done? According to Crick, one possibility is that as soon as the sensory inputs make it to a region called the thalamus, they can be under some behavioral selection pressures meaning that when information comes from the retina to the visual thalamus, you can basically start doing some filtering operations on that before it even gets to the cortex where you have high-order representations being built. Basically, Crick developed a theory in which the sensory thalamus acted not just as a relay station, but also as a gatekeeper. It stems the flow of some data to establish a certain level of focus. But decades passed, and scientists failed to identify an actual mechanism. Part of the problem was how enormously difficult it is to establish methods for studying attention in lab animals. 
that didn't stop Halasa. He wanted to determine exactly how sensory inputs got filtered before information reached the cortex to pin down the precise circuit that Crick's work implied would be there. The structure that would control that gating or the filtering is known as the thalamic reticular nucleus, the TRN. This is a thin layer of inhibitory neurons. It wraps around the rest of the thalamus like a shell. I became very interested in that idea when I was a postdoc. My postdoc was about developing the first recordings from the thalamic reticular nucleus in a freely behaving mouse and to figure out what exactly do these neurons do. Halasa found a coarse level of gating in that brain area. The TRN seemed to let sensory inputs through when an animal was awake and attentive to something in its environment, but it suppressed them when the animal was asleep. And what I realized is that the TRN is actually composed of many circuits. It's not a monolith. Composed of sub-networks, each of which controlling a different thalamic structure. In 2015, Halasa and his colleagues discovered another, finer level of gating that further implicated the TRN as part of Crick's long-sought circuit. This time, they looked at how animals select what to focus on when their attention is divided among different senses. In the study, the researchers used mice trained to run as directed by flashing lights and sweeping audio tones. They then simultaneously presented the animals with conflicting commands from the lights and tones, but also cued them about which signal to ignore. Halasa says the mice's responses showed how effectively they were focusing their attention. It engages top-down attention. The idea that based on a task instruction, you can deploy your attentional resources to one aspect of the sensory world versus another. Throughout the task, the researchers used well-established techniques to shut off activity in various brain regions to see what interfered with the animal's performance. As expected, the prefrontal cortex, which issues high-level commands to other parts of the brain, was crucial. But the team also observed that if a trial required the mice to attend to vision, turning on neurons in the visual TRN interfered with their performance. And when those neurons were silenced, the mice had more difficulty paying attention to sound. In effect, the network was turning the knobs on inhibitory processes, not excitatory ones. The TRN inhibited information that the prefrontal cortex deemed distracting. If the mouse needed to prioritize auditory information, the prefrontal cortex, or PFC, told the visual TRN to increase its activity to suppress the visual thalamus. This stripped away irrelevant visual data. Or in the words of Halasa, We realized when we were doing that paper that the PFC does not project directly to these TRN subnetworks. So in order for the PFC to cause these changes, there has to be circuits that are intermediate that couple what happens in the PFC to what happens in the sensory thalamus. The attentional searchlight metaphor was backward. The brain wasn't brightening the light on stimuli of interest. It was lowering the lights on everything else. Despite the success of the study, the researchers recognized a problem. They had confirmed Crick's hunch. The prefrontal cortex controls a filter on incoming sensory information in the thalamus. 
But the prefrontal cortex doesn't have any direct connections to the sensory portions of the TRN. Some part of the circuit was missing. Until now. Halasa and his colleagues have finally put the rest of the pieces in place. The results reveal a lot about how we should be approaching the study of attention. With tasks similar to those they'd used in 2015, the team probed the functional effects of various brain regions on one another, as well as the neuronal connections between them. They found the full circuit goes from the prefrontal cortex to a much deeper structure called the basal ganglia. That's the part of the brain often associated with motor control and a host of other functions. From there, the circuit continues to the TRN and then to the thalamus before going back up to higher cortical regions. Halasa explains. To a large extent, what the PFC does is figure out what's irrelevant and suppresses that. For instance, as visual information passes from the eye to the visual thalamus, it can get intercepted almost immediately if it's not relevant to the given task. The basal ganglia can step in and activate the visual TRN to screen out the extraneous stimuli. That stays in line with the prefrontal cortex's directive. Richard Krauslis is a neuroscientist at the National Eye Institute at the National Institutes of Health in Maryland. He didn't participate in the study. If the thalamus is the gatekeeper for cortex, then the thalamic reticular nucleus is sort of the gatekeeper for the thalamus. So they're looking at this interesting pathway coming out of the basal ganglia that goes to the thalamic reticular nucleus, which is then regulating what goes back up to cortex through the thalamus. It's an interesting feedback pathway that I don't think has been described before functionally. The researchers also found that the mechanism doesn't just filter out one sense to raise awareness of another. It filters information within a single sense, too. When the mice were cued to pay attention to certain sounds, the TRN helped to suppress irrelevant background noise within the auditory signal. Duye Tadine is a neuroscientist at the University of Rochester. He says the effects on sensory processing can be much more precise than suppressing the entire thalamic region. We often in neuroscience focus on things that matter and how does the brain enhance things that are really important like using attention, but we often sort of neglect how do we sort of get rid of the things that are less important. And oftentimes I think that's a more efficient way of dealing with information. Tadin studies this kind of background suppression in other processes that happen more quickly and automatically than selective attention. You know, we have limited brain processing. There are a lot of bottlenecks. We simply cannot handle all the information that we have. So we use attention to enhance things that are more important to us. One analogy I often use, and this applies to attention as well, so if you are you know, looking for gold in a river, you take the gold-shaking pan, and what you do is you shake out all the stuff that's not relevant, like mud and rocks, and presumably you're left with something useful like gold. Neuroscientist Michael Halas's findings indicate that the brain casts extraneous perceptions aside earlier than expected. Ian Feeblecorn is a cognitive neuroscientist at Princeton University. What's interesting that they're showing here is that this sort of filtering of the visual environment or auditory environment is happening at that early of a level. So the first input from the retina in the eye into the brain, that this filtering is occurring there in this first step. Before the information even reaches the visual cortex. But there's an obvious weakness in the brain's strategy of tossing out sensory information this way. 
What if that stuff that gets thrown out turns out to be important? Feeblecorn's work suggests that the brain has a way to hedge against that. Feeblecorn says when people think about the searchlight of attention, they think of it as a steady, continuously shining beam that illuminates where an animal should direct its cognitive resources. And what my research shows is that that's not true. Instead, it seems that that spotlight is blinking. Even when you're trying to focus at like a single location in space, it seems like the brain is checking in like four times per second or every approximately 250 milliseconds to be sure that the present location or present focus is still the most important one. That checking in makes the attentional spotlight temporarily weaker. That brief suppression of what's important gives other peripheral stimuli an indirect boost. Feeblecorn says that creates an opportunity for the brain to shift its attention to something else if necessary. The brain seems to be wired to be periodically distractible. Like Michael Halas's team, Feeblecorn and his colleagues are also looking to subcortical regions to explain this wiring. For now, they've been studying the role of yet another section of the thalamus, but they plan to look into the basal ganglia in the future, too. These studies mark a critical shift. Attentional processes were once understood to be the province of the cortex alone. Here's neuroscientist Richard Krausless again. Most, if not all, of the key steps for attention involved modulating the quality of sensory processing. And that's, that's been kind of a dominant theme. But then over the past five years or so, it's always been there, but it's become a little bit more obvious that there are things that are happening underneath the cortex. John Mandel, a neurobiologist at the University of Chicago, says most people want the cerebral cortex to do all of the heavy lifting. But he says that's not realistic. Halas's discovery of the basal ganglia's role in attention is particularly fascinating. That's partly because it's such an ancient area of the brain, one that hasn't typically been viewed as a part of selective attention. Krausless says the basal ganglia seems to be an important part of the circuits, going back eons. I mean, fish have this. Going back to like the earliest vertebrates, like the lamprey, which doesn't even have a jaw, they have a simple form of basal ganglia in some of these same circuits. The fish's neural circuitry may offer hints about how attention evolved. In us, these same structures are among the most commonly implicated in neuropsychiatric disorders. So it's not like they're ancient and they're doing something really simple. They're ancient and they're doing something really complicated that's relevant for cognition. Halasa is particularly intrigued by what the connection between attention and the basal ganglia might reveal about conditions like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and autism. Those often manifest as hypersensitivity to certain kinds of inputs. But perhaps the most interesting point about the involvement of the basal ganglia is that the structure is usually associated with motor control. But research has increasingly implicated it in reward-based learning, decision-making, and other motivation-based types of behavior. With the work being done in Halasa's lab, the basal ganglia's role has now been extended to include sensory control, too. Neurobiologist John Manzel says this highlights an important fact. Attention is really about sequencing from this to that in the correct order and making sure you don't get distracted by things you shouldn't be distracted by. And the notion that motor structures are involved in this, I think, is something that people have been pretty happy about all along. It's appropriate in a way that they should be right at the heart of 
the process of deciding what you will attend to next, what you will focus your sensory resources on next. That keeps with the burgeoning view that attention and cognition as a whole are processed based on what's known as active inference. The brain doesn't passively sample information from the environment and then respond to what's observed. The reverse also happens with body movements as small as the flicker of an eye also guiding perception. Cognitive neuroscientist Ian Feeblecorn says there are two systems at work. The sensory system of the brain, the part of the brain that's like analyzing information from our environment, and the motor system of the brain, the system that's acting on that information. But the truth is that they don't operate independently and they evolve together. And so motor regions don't only help to shape the output, let's say an animal's behavior, they also help to shape the input. Michael Holassa's findings support that more proactive role. Perception serves action because we have to represent the world in order to act in it. That's Helene Slagter, a cognitive scientist at VU University, Amsterdam. How we learn to perceive the world around us is very much through action, by predicting the sensory consequences of our actions. And then maybe at later stages in development, we also learn to simulate the consequences of our actions. And you could say maybe that then is cognition or attention, but that really grounds cognition in action. It fundamentally makes cognition action oriented. I think it just highlights the importance also of subcortical structures. I think a lot of people, when they think about higher cognition, they think about the cortex, but it really doesn't operate in isolation and it's highly interconnected with these subcortical structures. And these subcortical structures play a much more important role in higher order cognition than I think is often considered. That could provide hints about how to think about consciousness, neuroscience's most elusive subject. Neurobiologist John Manzel says you just have to look at Michael Halas's study and other research. When we look at the neural correlates of attention, we're actually looking to some extent at the neural correlates of perception. With that, it gives us extra leverage in terms of trying to understand what aspects of the signals that we see in the brain are most critical for perceptions, decision-making, cognition, and movements. So it's part of a bigger picture in terms of trying to understand how the brain works. Matt Karlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Jordana Sapelowitz's full article. To pay attention, the brain uses filters, not a spotlight, on our website, quantamagazine.org. You can read more about science and the origins of life's complexity in the Quanta book, Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire, published by the MIT Press, available now wherever you buy books. 